Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Fel. I just shoved food in my mouth before I did the intro. I don't know why I did that. And I'm Hani. And this week we are going to talk about something that we've kind of gone back and forth on whether we wanted to actually talk about it or not, Um, but it's witchcraft and mental health. And we eventually decided to do this after some encouragement from Ruby, who gave us the episode idea and then also actually put together the bones of our episode outline. Ruby is somebody we had on as a guest for episode, I don't remember what it was what number it is, but it was a while back. And they are an occupational therapist, pagan, and a Wiccan. She's really well-informed on mental health and was really helpful when we actually decided to do this topic and then in the discussions surrounding its preparation. So Ruby is a member of our Discord, so if you do want to chat about the themes discussed in the episode, please feel free to join the Discord and we would love to continue the chat over there. But before we get started, um, we're going to do our What Happened on This Day. It is currently July 18th, 2022. So in honor of the images that were released by NASA from the James Webb Space Telescope, our What Happened on This Day is also astrologically related. So on July 18th in 1860, Warren de la Rue captured the first series of photographs showing the progression of a total solar eclipse in Spain. Funnily enough, Father Angelo Secchi, I think is how you pronounce that, was also doing the same about 500 kilometers away. And it was the moon's advancement over the red protuberances that settled the debate at the time, which was which luminary was actually creating the shadow during the total solar eclipse. So I thought that was a fun thing to throw in there. But let's move on from that and go ahead and get started. So like we usually do, we're going to start with defining some terms. Who wants to take that? Yeah, so I think for me, the most important thing this episode is going to be distinguishing mental health and mental illness. Weirdly, I see people use mental health to as a stand-in for mental illness when they're actually two completely different concepts. So it's important to differentiate the two. So when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about psychological and emotional well-being. So it's often associated with positive physical health as well. They kind of go hand in hand. By contrast, you have mental ill health, which might refer to somebody with like low mood or just other psychological functioning, which has like a negative impact on their daily life. If those issues are persistent and they fit a particular pattern, they might be diagnosed as a mental illness. So that might be like depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever. And that might be acute, so short term, or it might be more long lasting. So today we're going to talk about both how spirituality can support mental health, but also how it can intersect with mental illness and why that's important. I also think it's important to uh, differentiate neurodivergence from mental health. A lot of times people will lump in things, especially ADHD gets lumped in a lot with mental illness. ADHD is not a mental illness. It is a neurodivergence. And neurodivergence is hard to really uh, explain totally in depth because, you know, we're still trying to figure out why that is. But a lot of it has to do with processing or in the case of ADHD, executive functioning which is basically how your brain uh, structures what is most important and organized tasks. So that has to do with the makeup of your brain uh, as well. And there's also like certain mental illnesses. I put that in quotes because there are certain ones that have gone kind of back and forth on, are these actually mental illnesses? Are they neurological disorders? One such case is OCD. OCD is common, is like currently, or for a long time, it's been thought of as a mental illness, but there have been discussions on is it actually more a neurological disorder a lot of that has to do with what caused something so it's a very loose term and yeah it's very complicated 
we also kind of want to take a moment and kind of let you guys know where we're coming from. So none of us are mental health professionals. I don't think any of us purport to be anything even close to that. So a lot of what we're going to talk about is coming from personal experience. So I'm somebody who has like high functioning anxiety and then can fall into depressive episodes. So mental illness is something that I struggle with. And I know some of the other hosts also counter some of those struggles. If you guys want to elaborate a little bit, you don't have to go in depth. For myself, I've spoken a bit about this before of having struggles with OCD and, and PTSD. And both of those are things that they're like, what is neurological? What is mental? What does that mean? And then in terms of like, neurodivergence I also have ADHD but that's again not mental illness but it does inform the way that I view the world and it also can create interesting mixtures with mental illness as well. Yeah I'm somebody who's had mental health issues since I was about 14 actually it's not worth going into every single diagnosis but it includes OCD and also personality disorder. It was really important to me to do this episode because it has been something that's intersected quite a lot with my spiritual Jenny, if you like, though, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to talk about um, with you guys. Yeah, so with all of that, let's go ahead and maybe get into it. Let's start off with uh, religion and mental health. So obviously not all spirituality encompasses religion, but I think religion is a good place to start. So I was actually quite surprised when I was searching this. There is actually quite a lot of evidence for religion having a positive impact on mental health. Obviously, the impact is not entirely positive, but let's let's start with the positive facts. So some of the scientific literature suggests that there are lower rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, and even stress-related illness like heart disease in many cohorts who self-describe as religious or spiritual. So this is not just in the US, but also in many other countries like Sri Lanka, Japan, um, Germany. It seems to be a kind of worldwide thing. The whole swathe of studies, admittedly some on the small side, support these positive effects of religion on mental health. Before we actually get into the evidence for this, why do you guys think this might be? Structure and purpose, I think, are a lot of the main reasons. It gives your brain structure, and I think that structure helps you know how to navigate the world. And then giving you a sense of purpose kind of gives you a reason to keep going. And that's not like the core of every, you know, mental illness. But like, it's like, you know, if you have a panic attack, well, okay, that's a bad example. Let's say like you're just, if you're prone to anxiety or depression, I, I can see religion having a positive impact on those things in certain regards in which you have, because you have this structure, it can perhaps be a container for that anxiety because it gives you, you know, purpose. It can help be a motivating factor for you even if you like even if you are suffering in a, a depressive bout obviously it's not going to cure your depression but it can give you a reason again to like keep going something to look to that is bigger than yourself yeah i would say purpose is a big one and also having somebody there that is on your side is another one because i know for me like it sounds so simple but like we don't always have people that we can go to to talk about everything in our lives and there can be a lot of reasons for that and so religion offers you a god or goddess or spirit of some kind in which you can have like a very close connection with and or even your ancestors like if you just want to push aside any kind of deity just your ancestors being able to go to them and just talk about anything and not feel restricted by needing to either accommodate other people's beliefs or their thoughts their opinions and their views and just to be able to like discuss it with somebody i think that's a really big part of why people enjoy religion is because they feel loved and appreciated and heard by the spirits deities or even ancestors that they work with. I think that's a really, really good point. And actually, it kind of plays into the aspect that I was going to bring up, which is in a lot of studies, and that's the community aspect of religion. So obviously, this maybe doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of kind of pagan religions, which sometimes can be a little bit more solitary. But for mainstream religions, they obviously hold regular gatherings, like going to church together. 
and these offer a great degree of social support. And there was even one small study that suggested that adherence to psychiatric treatment is improved in people who self-define as religious. So it's possible that there's kind of a, a social pressure that makes people engage with psychiatric support a little bit more. And um, that kind of helps them to have better outcomes overall. Another one is kind of positive religious coping. And that sort of goes in hand in hand with what Phil was saying about structure. It's sort of a positive reframing of certain negative things, which can, in some people, help to downplay some of the negative uh, cognitive distortions that come with depression. But yeah, I was curious about this because I was thinking, if a lot of this religious support comes from the social aspects, how does that apply to solitary practitioners? I'm really struggling to find evidence for this, actually. But there was one study in the British Journal of Psychology, and this suggested that unusual beliefs in what they term as like modern spirituality, they've historically been misassigned to things like schizotypy. However, when they re-reviewed these beliefs, they kind of didn't actually fit the definition of a mental illness. These people just had like eccentric beliefs, but they didn't have any distressing delusions or unhealthy attachment styles. What they were saying is that these people were actually experiencing positive effects from what had previously been um, assigned as symptoms. And so maybe we shouldn't necessarily be pathologizing things like unusual religions or paganism um, in a mental health setting. And I was also curious if you guys had ever experienced kind of any religious discrimination or stigma from mental health providers. I want to briefly touch on um, the comment you made about community, right? And whether that applies to like solitary practitioners, especially because I think even people who are solitary, they yearn for a community. I mean, it's one of the reasons why all of these discords are so popular online, because despite someone being alone in their practice, they still wish to be around other people for guidance or even approval or ideas, reframing kind of of their own thoughts and their own spell work and so on and so forth. And so I don't think the community is really removed even from a solitary practitioner because lots of people still seek that out. I will say it's not surprising to me that you brought up community because I know personally from my own experience and also like from experience of my friends, the community is a huge part of that. And having a group of people you can go to who understand how you view the world can be so validating in many ways. A lot of times, like we as humans yearn for that validation. Even amidst mental illness, sometimes something happens and you kind of sit there and you doubt maybe your experiences. But to have some kind of validation that maybe it's not just you and this is an actual thing that's happening or that people are feeling can be really helpful. Yeah, in terms of religious discrimination, I can't think of really a time that I really face that i mean like i grew up right-wing evangelical and everyone who's right-wing and evangelical has an oppression complex so like we would kind of manifest discrimination for ourselves but i can't think of any genuine religious discrimination i live in like an extremely pagan area and my general community is extremely pagan i wouldn't say i've experienced discrimination from it but i have gotten the side eye a couple of times specifically like this is something that when I changed therapists, I was always, I'm always hesitant a little bit to talk about spirituality, especially because being in the ceremonial magic side, a lot of people just, they don't understand. And I don't really have a good way of explaining why it is so important to me and what those experiences are like without sounding a little crazy. Like when I talk about, it, it's like, no, I conjured a full appearance. I mean, what that means is that you can conjure a spirit to full appearance in front of you, like in the triangle. If you just say that to somebody like who's outside the community, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like you're, you're crazy. And it's like, no, it's, it's not like that. Luckily, I have a wonderful therapist and they are great with all of that. We've had many really good conversations. On the occasion, when I bring up people like probe in conversation or when I like first brought it up to my therapist, there was like the kind of quiet like, hmm, 
That's interesting, right? Before the conversation continued. So no direct like stigma or discrimination for which I'm really thankful for, but certainly a little bit of side eyeing here and there. What about you, Hanny? Yeah, I was going to say that's really, really good that you've never actually experienced any stigma for it. Um, I have experienced this kind of stigma. Actually, it was when I was first in the process of getting diagnosed for a personality disorder. So this is when I was like probably 19 years old. And um, they actually ask you about whether you have any kind of magico religious beliefs. I can't remember the specific phrasing of the questions, but they ask you about these things. And I remember talking to the person who was diagnosing me and I was saying, if I had these beliefs in a Christian context, I don't think that you would be pathologizing them in the way that you are. And I think having that experience of basically having my religious experiences pathologized made me very um, afraid to reach out to community. And so I was sort of a bit deprived of the more community aspects and the, the positive things for my mental health because they were being treated as a mental illness and not as a kind of legitimate thing. So I do think it's really important for psychologists to recognize that, you know, there are modes of spirituality beyond just mainstream religions and they can actually be beneficial to mental health. Obviously, that needs to be differentiated from real illness. But yeah, it's it's a bugbear for me. We talked about the positive impacts that spirituality or religion rather can have on mental health. But despite all of this, it can also have negative effects on mental health. And it's important for us not to discount those. So we're going to get into that. Yeah, so some of the mental health issues that people experience can manifest in ways that are related to religion. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but it might include things like OCD-related religious obsessions and compulsions. This is usually called scrupulosity. So it's like a really obsessive need to pray, for example. It could be religion-related rela- hallucinations or delusions in psychosis or schizospectrum disorders. It might be negative religious coping, so somebody who feels like they've transgressed in some way, and that kind of plays into like negative self-image. Or it might even be negative experiences with community members in a religious setting. So, you know, if you're if you're having a lot of pressure from people around you to conform to a certain way. Do, can you guys think of any, any more of these? Based on the last thing you talked about, which was the negative experiences with community members in a religious setting, I want to talk about something that I see pop up in cult circles a lot, which is this idea of religious trauma. Not idea, it's like a thing. What are your thoughts on religious trauma and how it, like the impact that it has on mental health, either from personal experience or if anybody looked up studies like, with this? <laughs> I have a lot of stuff for this. Before I was an occult YouTuber, I was a religious trauma blogger, and I'm proud to say I was one of the first Tumblr blogs dedicated to the subject. (laughs) Um, Anyway, religious trauma is definitely a very, very big issue. I would say, I I can't speak from any other country's perspective, but religious trauma is extremely prevalent in America just because... We have a high proportion of evangelicals who tend to fall into high demand groups. High demand groups is kind of like a a, a nicer way of saying a cult, but also one that's a lot more nuanced. We could talk about high demand groups at another time, potentially, but it's basically this thing that kind of it's, it's your whole community. It takes up your entire life, essentially. And because a lot of America is very rural and a lot of these communities tend to be rural, leaving is extremely hard. And leaving not only isolates you from the community, the religious community, but isolates you from your geographic community as well. And it's really hard, especially if you don't have a lot of resources to leave or if you're queer or if you're a person of color. It's just a 
big nightmare. So I think that's why religious traumas, at least to me, I don't have any number on this, but it, it seems to be extremely prevalent in America, at least. I mean, it's definitely elsewhere as well. For me, part of my PTSD diagnosis comes from religious trauma specifically. So it's definitely uh, real and it's very, I don't know, it fucks you up a lot. And I think a lot of people in the occult community are X whatever. They just kind of destroy your mind in many ways. Yeah, it's really been interesting for me the last couple of years, especially to see the amount of people kind of in our generation and younger who are coming out and like talking about their experiences, either issues while they were um, in a particular religion or having left that community, kind of the struggles that they face, that they face kind of on the daily. But just like Spell was saying earlier, um, primarily in the U.S., it seems to stem from the evangelical, like Christian Catholic churches, I guess evangelical churches and Catholicism as well. Part of what we see coming from that is this like hatred of Christianity or like the Christian God, which I don't think is entirely there, I guess, because any religion can kind of pull somebody in in an unhealthy manner and then have someone can have religious trauma stem from that. And I think what's been really unfortunate about the heavy hand that evangelical Christianity has in the U.S. is that so many people are experiencing religious trauma from it and the poor actions of its practitioners, I guess you could really go into, that it's leading to this kind of second movement of, of Christian hate or hate against people who practice Christianity. Even like Christian witches get a lot of hate nowadays. People saying, you know, you can't be both. How dare you? I think it's really hard to deal with that religious trauma. Like speaking to somebody who, who has it, it's, it can be very difficult to kind of work through that and figure out, you know, how you feel, but like still also being fair to the people who practice those religions. Like right wing Christianity has done nothing to help the image of, of God in, in our society. And there's a lot of those kind of overwhelming misconceptions that may not necessarily be true if you actually go back to look at like scripture on the biblical level. It's hard. I think religious trauma is a really difficult subject to talk about. It's really hard for people to cope with. It's something that years in therapy I am still working through, still have issues with. If you're experiencing the same, like you are not alone. Hanny, what do you think? Yeah, it's actually not something that I have a great deal of experience with. I think because I've been mostly solitary and I haven't really had the same um, sort of pressures around it, but it's definitely something that I've noticed popping up in the community. And um, I think it's something that everybody really needs to be aware of because everybody's coming from different places when they're engaging with spirituality, right? So it's you cannot necessarily generalize your experience. And um, it's important to be kind of sensitive when, when working with people who maybe are a little bit traumatized or... Um, have had negative experiences with high demand groups. I can introduce the next section if you're good with that. Cool. So because mental illness might manifest in um, all of these ways that we've described, so that might be religious trauma, might be certain delusions, it's really important for community members and also community leaders to understand what a mental health crisis looks like, because it's not uncommon for them to experience somebody with a mental health issue before primary care providers do, especially if it's an illness which uh, causes a lot of mistrust and paranoia. So let's kind of go through a few of the warning signs for mental health issues, which you might experience if you're in a community, or particularly if you're a community leader, you should be aware of. So some of those are very intense preoccupation with religion, like more intense than you would expect for a kind of normal, and I know everyone's normal is different, but something that seems quite emotionally intense as well. Emotional dysregulation around religion. So if somebody's very upset, if they can't pray, or very fearful of something that will happen to them, uh, repetitive or obsessive actions, thoughts that appear to be disconnected or confused, social withdrawal, and extreme changes to your usual routine, uh, like eating and sleeping. 
Can you guys think of any more? I think those are the main ones, which would be a real warning signs for me. One that I see, and that's specifically related to ceremonial magic, because like planetary timing or astrological timing and stuff are really, really important for our practices in general. Sometimes what you'll see is people will go to extreme lengths and let's say they're doing like a invocation of the seven planetary intelligences and they're going to do it every single day of the week. And because the hours are different, I mean, you could do the start of the the hour, I suppose, but like you're getting up at, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. every single day. And then if that continues like substantially, that's a potential concern and it could be worthwhile like checking with the person being like hey are you okay like do you need anything like I understand like why you want to do this because I do I mean if I had the capacity to do that I would but like let's talk about like realistically maybe what we can do that still keeps you healthy um, as a person so yeah that's what that's a big one for us is like that timing sequence can be really important and it can really drain people and they don't necessarily recognize it and I've even seen pedendences where it's like sent people into spirals where things were getting better and then because of a series of complex ritual things kind of spiraled back out of control and so it was like okay let's work together to kind of bring it back to to normalcy. So yeah, obviously delusion is quite a big one, which comes up quite a lot in a lot of occult spaces. Delusion is a really complicated and difficult thing to deal with. Obviously, we are not mental health professionals. And unless you are, like, don't go in and meet somebody who is experiencing delusions with the expectation of providing professional level support, because you're just not going to be able to do that. But there are things that you can do to make someone who's experiencing an illness feel kind of more safe and supported, which can contribute to better health for them. And it can also make them feel more able to reach out to other support networks when they need to. So the first one is when you're speaking to somebody who's experiencing delusions or you think is experiencing delusions, don't challenge the delusion too much. And I think this kind of runs contrary to the attitude in a lot of occult and witchcraft spaces where there's this like prevailing feeling that you need to challenge misinformation and, you know, tell someone when they're wrong. But somebody who's experiencing a delusion is just going to meet you and with, with kind of mistrust um, rather than, uh, you know, having their actual reality ch- changed. So it's important to kind of instead validate the need for the belief and the emotions surrounding the belief. So, you know, oh, you know, that must have been really scary. Or like, how are you feeling after that? That sounds quite difficult rather than telling them that they're wrong, because it's important to kind of build up that rapport. I think the important part of that statement was validating the need for the belief. A lot of times people who have delusions, it might be wrong. They might even be aware that it's not accurate. Like one thing that I do with like visions and your things that I see is I tend to go back and compare it to historical records. And it's like, do these match up at least to a certain extent? But with delusion, they they might even fully understand that it's not accurate or that it doesn't fit kind of what's already been distinguished. I mean, I don't even care. Because of the, this, like, innate desire and need to, like, think or believe that this is a thing. And so the validation of that, like, I know you're going through a really rough time. I can understand why, like, this would be really comforting to you. But, like, validating and understanding that need specifically, I think, is the key point there without validating the delusion itself. Another thing that you can do, and I think that kind of uh, matches what you were just saying, Astra, is really gently questioning the logic rather than challenging the delusion directly. So... Rather than saying, like, oh, you're wrong because X, Y, Z, you can maybe say, oh, well, why do you think this happened? And this, if somebody's a little bit more lucid, gently questioning, emphasis on gentle, can offer a very, very mild version of reality testing. And sometimes that can help people to get their thoughts straight if they're a little bit kind of more lucid. Also, another option is just distracting and shifting to other topics, because sometimes delusions can be quite distressing. And so rather than playing along and furthering the delusion, sometimes it's better to just distract and that will provide a kind of level of support and 
help to bring the kind of emotion of the situation down. Um, and also, once you've built a good rapport up, that means that you can signpost to local mental health resources. So it can also be helpful to undertake mental health first aid training if this is something that is available to you. This is something that Ruby has discussed in the past on our Discord, but the idea of mental health first aid training is not necessarily to provide long-term therapeutic support, which you shouldn't be doing anyway if you're not a mental health professional or act like a psychiatrist, but instead to provide the first supportive point of contact for someone experiencing a mental health issue. So this could be by acting as a supportive listener or perhaps signposting someone to appropriate resources. It might even include advocacy, like going to the doctor with them if they feel really nervous. I was recently listening to a podcast episode from someone who is a Catholic mystic. So he's actually a Catholic priest who's been ordained. And he spoke on specifically that recently um, when people go into um, this training to become a priest, they're required to actually take a mental health first aid course. Because when people come to confessional, um, a lot of times these topics will come up and it can be very, very jarring for the priests themselves. And so they have to be trained in being this kind of first aid support person that can then lead their constituent on to proper like mental health resources. It's a really valuable thing to do. Some places offer it through your work. So I know my job has it. We do it more as like a leadership management kind of thing. So how can we best support our employees like beneath us? A lot of hospitals will sometimes have it in like crisis centers and you know, you never know. So see if your work has it. Sometimes there are also like mental health facilities that will host like community first aid trainings where they make it open to the community for a day or a weekend. Um, and make kind of a, a bigger thing out of that just to bring more awareness to people as a whole. I'll also say that a lot of uh, activist groups will have mental health training uh, because part of a lot of activism is uh, a lot of activist groups have a focus on de-escalation and a lot of those line up in many ways. And it's also, you know, they have them, especially because you have to caretake for your members because actions can be scary and cause mental health issues. So a lot of times, especially if an activist group has, and a lot of them too, have mental health practitioners and social workers in them, they will sometimes run mental health first aid trainings as well. Um, a final thing that you can do is to familiarize yourself with your local mental health resources. So when we talk about signposting, where are you going to signpost them to? Because sometimes it's not really helpful to just be like, go to the doctor. Obviously, there are crisis lines for people who are in legitimate crisis, so they who are in danger. But calling 999 or 911, sorry, I've got the American number. <laughs> or there's even a new um, number in the US, I think it's 988, which is specifically for suicidality. And sometimes yeah. that can be useful. Yeah, but it can lead to the involvement of the police, which is not always what you want if somebody is, you know, in crisis, and maybe that might actually put them at more risk. So sometimes you can actually call crisis centers directly, or you can find out the details of someone's doctor if you're close to them. And sometimes that can be a better option than immediately referring them to a situation which is actually going to be way more high anxiety. This has kind of led us um, to a point where I wanted to talk about how we as the hosts and practitioners and people um, keep ourselves grounded in our experiences with mental health. So how do you distinguish between anxious thoughts and maybe a nudges from spirit guides is, I mentioned this earlier, but like is seeing a spirit manifest in front of you hallucination or reality in the moment? How do you all handle that with like prayers and spiritual experiences? Honestly, it's very hard, <laughs> especially with OCD for me, at least. And also like ADHD also 
has intrusive thoughts. So having those two together is often fun. It's very difficult. Maladaptive daydreaming and the like are extremely devastating to me in many ways. Just why sometimes I'm a little bit, um, I try to gently, like I try to share those experiences because I think a lot of people don't realize just how powerful maladaptive daydreaming is and those types of intrusive thoughts. It's really, really hard. I honestly will usually seek divination from by like divining an outside sign that is something that because that's like you know I'm, I'm not making up if a weird bird lands on my porch so that's something to me that I will look for outside signs to confirm whatever internal stuff is going on but frankly like I don't do a lot of I mean that's part of the reason I don't do any energy work anymore is because I can't I can't discern I struggle very much to discern between what is intrusive thoughts and what is messages i don't know if that that's helpful at all but yeah um a really important one for me is context so i'm speaking as somebody who has had experiences with actual hallucinations from time to time um and so it can be very distressing and scary to have a hallucination like that and then be kind of questioning everything i've noticed that when i do tend to have hallucinations they tend to come in situations where i was already a little bit stressed or there were already things going on and they're never in a kind of existing spiritual setting. So, you know, it's not like I, I went out to pray and then I had this experience. It's like I went to the mirror and I saw this like nasty thing or um, I was walking on my way to work and I heard a voice. I tend to think of these things a little bit more critically if I don't experience them in a spiritual context, because it, I feel like if those things are happening, they should be happening in the correct context. And sometimes, you know, if these things happen to me and I realize that they are, you know, maybe not real, I have to take a bit of a break from spirituality for a bit. And, you know, that's okay. It's, it's not everybody has the capacity for a kind of regular daily practice. And if you're susceptible to these kind of things, you have to know your limits and you just have to play it by ear a little bit. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, Hanny, because as somebody who does a lot of spirit work myself, a big thing is the context. So we intentionally set up a ritual setting to to do these things and I'm in kind of a trance state. But if if this starts if like these kind of things start happening outside of that context, I am much more apt to like critically evaluate exactly what's happening because it's unusual. Like I intentionally create a space and a time in a particular environment to facilitate these kind of experiences. And if it's beginning to leave that particular environment, then I'm a little bit less likely to, um, I guess, take it seriously, I suppose you could say. Um, another thing for me is just, it's like the critical evaluation. That is a huge thing for me. It's why I talk to a lot of other practitioners to see like, what have your experiences been? Are they similar to mine? Are they not similar? Now, part of the issue you run into there, right, is comparison of your practice with somebody else's. But kind of within ceremonial magic, it's a little bit more structured. You can do that a little bit easier and kind of get like a yes, no, this does, doesn't happen. Context is a big one for me. Critical evaluation of myself is also a big one. Jason Miller actually just released his book, Consorting with Spirits. And he makes a point in there about how when it comes to like visualization and meditation, some people are like, oh, I can't ever visualize. And people are like, I can do it really wonderfully, right? There's like these two camps of individuals. And he mentions that both have a lot of work to do. But one thing he says about people who can maybe visualize really easily or have this kind of supernatural spiritual connection is it's like, and I think this applies to people who don't have that too, but one of the biggest kind of jobs you have as a practitioner then is discernment, being able to discern what you're experiencing and whether that is of a supernatural nature, a spiritual nature being done in a spiritual context 
or if it's something outside of that. Like learning the art of discernment in that case is so critically important. And I, I fully agree with that statement. Um, I think as practitioners and people who kind of envelop themselves in these this world of occult virtues and spirituality and engaging with beings that are outside of the physical realm, it is so important for us to be critical about our experiences. And not critical necessarily in a negative sense, but just like evaluate them, like objectively look and evaluate um, your own experiences to see if they kind of match what you might expect. Kind of similar to Fell, another thing that I do is if I can, I try to remove myself from something. So I don't do much, much like divination for myself. I usually have other people do it. I have an astrologer that I consult for everything. I have tarot readers that I go to for larger decisions. And I do that to kind of remove myself and remove the potential biases that I have as a practitioner from influencing things. So we've talked about kind of the positive and negative impacts of spirituality or religion on mental health. So next, I think we're going to talk about some other ways that spirituality or religion can support mental health. Yeah, I, I think this came up in the outline. And um, I think Ruby wrote, uh, paganism is often described as a nature-based religion. And I think I would maybe push back on that because Hellenism is like not particularly nature-based intrinsically. That being said, I do a lot of my ritual work outdoors, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm kind of the exception that proves the rule. But yeah, I think a lot of paganism is very, very centered around like the seasons and the sabbats and um, sometimes even animism. And getting outdoors can be very, a very, very positive experience. Yeah, I just got back from a retreat and I have not gone camping in the woods in forever. And oh my God, I like cried every single day. <laughs> I literally fucking sat with a tree and I cried like I'm a big old hippie. Um, and it was great though. I was walking through the woods just crying. To, and it was like not like a sad cry. It was just, you know, like it was just my body releasing whatever. Um, and like listening to the bees. And I, I actually let one of the bees guide me where to go. And it was just like a deeply, deeply healing experience. And obviously getting out in nature is not going to cure your mental illness but there is something that is just so magnificent about nature i mean we're you know humans are a part of nature as much as we like to pretend that we're not we very much are i could rant about this for freaking forever and i think sometimes people get put off by the phrase touch grass but like being being on the internet and on tiktok all the time is just is destroying people's mental health it's literally like there have been countless studies showing uh since like social media was invented showing how detrimental the effects can be long term. Some of the some of the studies that are coming out of TikTok are like deeply alarming. My phone usage went down to 4 minutes per day over this past week and like that was insane. I definitely felt it. And there's something about being disconnected so long that I was like maybe I should just throw my whole phone out. <laughs> and like obviously you don't have to go to that extreme, you know, you don't have to live without electricity and stuff, but don't knock the deeply healing nature the deeply, the deeply healing nature of nature. Hug a tree, for real. It'll make you feel better. Even just for a moment. I'm always a proponent of finding moments. I think that I learned when, um, you know, I was very deeply unwell. People got me to, like, stop trying to have a good day. Even just, like, have find a good moment, you know? It, even if the rest of your day is shit, like, finding one moment of calm can make a difference. Yeah, I fully agree. My practice isn't necessarily like super nature-based. However, I engage a lot with spirits of the Jesus Loci, so that they are all outside, generally speaking. Have like specified days and times that I go out and like say hello and engage with them. Being outside, there is nothing like it. There are days on the weekend where if I'm just feeling really off, 
I have a park nearby that has like lots of hiking trails and has a river and I will go and spend the whole day outside because I can. And it is amazing the difference it can make. Even just that day, but even the next day, then in how I feel and being like feeling more productive and more just like myself in general. I also have recently been kind of curbing myself of social media, trying really hard not to engage in it quite so often. And it is surprising. For instance, like what I did as is I began, instead of when I got home from work, what I would usually do previously was like, sit on my couch, scroll through TikTok or Twitter or Discord and like catch up from all the notifications that I had. Now I don't do that. I get home from work. I usually take a 30 minute to an hour walk and then I come back and by then it's time to like eat dinner. And so I'll make dinner and eat dinner and then clean up. And I'm spending way less time on Discord, social media in general, and it has done amazing things for like my own mental health. And so I really like that. So there's plenty of studies. And if you have, you know, if you want studies that we've read, like I can certainly offer a few about how social media is really causing a significant decline in mental health. I think that's a really big part of it is just getting offline. And whether you go out into nature or not, I think is less relevant, but just being by yourself can go outside, read a book, write something, um, do anything but scroll, doom scroll. And it'll you'll be surprised at what a difference it makes. Yeah, this isn't something that you can just take our word for, though. Like there, there are definitely studies out there that show that actually being outside and nature-based recreation, as they call it, can really benefit you uh, psychologically. There was a systematic review in 2019, which looked at 51 articles, and 90% of these articles observed at least one positive association between nature-based recreation and mental health, uh, included improvements in effect, cognition, restoration, and well-being, and decreases in anxiety and depressive symptoms. So yeah, while it's not something that's going to cure you, and I definitely have a hard time getting outside just because of like OCD safety type stuff, I feel like not very safe within the house sometimes. It's definitely something that can kind of support mental health, even if you're, you know, even if you don't have a mental illness, it can kind of act as a sort of prophylactic effect. So just talking about like some additional benefits that being in a green space can have, it can improve your mood. So a lot of that comes from vitamin D and having more of that can help improve your mood, even just like walking around and causing the release of certain neurotransmitters that then boost your levels of endorphins and other kind of neurological stimulants that can help you, your mood increase as well. It can reduce your stress and anxiety. A big thing for me at work, when I start to feel overwhelmed, I get up and take a lap. So we have like a, not really a trail, but like it's a trail that leads underground that can be a little creepy. But like if I'm feeling really stressed at work and I just need some time to like stop thinking, stop working, I take a lap. I just take a walk and it's amazing what it can do. Provide a relaxation time. There's nothing wrong with sitting outside and with like a book or just laying on the grass for an hour because you can and you feel like it and you need to relax. That's totally valid. I wish we as a society would normalize that more. Like this is something that I've struggled with and I've had this conversation so many times with my therapist of like, I feel really guilty when I'm not being productive. And so the idea of just like intentionally setting time aside to like go outside and lay on the grass and just like let the sun beat on my face and whatever and not like not do anything, I feel guilty doing it, but it makes such a difference if I allow myself and make the time to do it. Promoting mindfulness. This is actually something we talked about on episode six, I think. (laughs) I found it earlier that I forgot. I think it's episode six. We talk about being mindful, being aware of the moment um, of what's going on and just bringing yourself back to the present. 
not worrying about things happening in the future or things that have happened in the past and focusing on what you're doing in the moment. Also, it helps you to be more active. Like I said earlier, going outside and spending some time out there can just rejuvenate you in general and then help you boost a le- a certain productivities or just bring you kind of back to your normal, like the way you feel kind of going day to day where you're maybe not being productive, but you at least feel more yourself, feel more like more active. Like you can go do things instead of, you know, feeling like you can't at all. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, um, over lockdown, um, I was not leaving the house very much, not just because of lockdown, but because again, like OCD, I was feeling really unsafe leaving the house. I was just feeling really, really bad. And the one reason I did leave is because I, I do a lot of my ritual work outside, as I mentioned. So it really forced me to go outside and engage. And so like, it was a really beneficial thing for me because that spirituality kind of kept me connected and kind of kept me getting outdoors. And um, I think it really benefited my mental health at a very dark point, actually. I think that's one of the reasons why the lockdown was so hard for so many people is because you were just cooped up inside all day, right? Like that happened to me too. I mean, luckily I was working in the laboratory, so I couldn't stop going to work necessarily during the lockdown. But the big thing was like, there were days where I didn't leave my apartment and it, it might've been two or three days consecutively. And I noticed such a big shift in like my my focus, my willingness to do anything. I mean, getting up and just walking outside for, or just moving around, even if it's just a lap around your apartment, like it doesn't need to be anything extensive, but doing that alone can just kind of shift and kick everything back into action. It's, it's almost as if you go into this like resting hibernation and you need to do something to kind of like get everything moving again, which will then grease the wheels and have it move forward. I have so many thoughts on this and I feel like if I start talking, I will never stop. Maybe it's because I just got back my <laughs> I've got back from an activist retreat. So I'm just very much thinking about tiny rebellions and rebelling against capitalism. There's this great Instagram that I'll plug. It's called the Nap Ministry. And their whole thing is naps are a tiny rebellion against capitalism. It's about, you know, reclaiming your own autonomy. And they always post pictures of them napping in the woods and like napping in meadows and (laughs) napping outdoors. Yeah, don't knock the nap. Don't knock reading outside. I mean, I too, like during the pandemic and like during specifically like early 2020, my therapist literally like basically prescribed me to go outside every morning for 30 minutes uh, with my teeth and just like sit there and like read. Or just sit there and watch the cars go by. Yeah, mine did the same thing. He was like, yeah, with your tea, your coffee in the morning. He was like, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. The sun is so important for so many things. So yeah, if you're if you're feeling really like isolated, make sure you like think to yourself, like, have I have I been inside for a long time? Um, And that could even be like, even if you just go from like your house to the train station and then to your job, like that's still mostly being inside. Again, it's not going to cure anything, but it's about building that support. Yeah, like for me, it would literally have to be like outside my front door sometimes because it would just not feel safe to go anywhere else. And you know, that's enough sometimes like uh, you've got the sun on your skin, you've got the vitamin D being produced, you've done something, you've actually done the barrier, kind of got out of bed, got got out of your front door. And it really feels like a big step. And sometimes if spirituality helps you engage with that, then that's that's what you need. And it can be really, really, really helpful. So something else you can do, and this has been a big change in my own life. And it's something I actually found when I was in undergrad, like going through college, finding new things, finding new things that you're passionate about, or in my case specifically, rotating things that you're really passionate about. So I have a lot of hobbies, things that I love to do in my free time, but it's overwhelming to do them all at once, which is what I normally try and do. And so, 
But at the same time, if I focus too long on one, I tend to get very bored of it. And I feel like I need to shake it up a bit. And so I do something called, I have rotating hobbies, meaning that every month at the beginning of the month, I choose a new hobby to focus on. That means I have a lot of half finished projects. That means I have a lot of things that are like just barely started. Um, and I've only finished a couple of them (laughs) since I started, (laughs) but what's nice about it is that it rotates so frequently that I never bored. And so it always gives me something to do. And it kind of curbs the like, if I get home or on the weekends, I wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't have anything to do. And it's like, oh, but I do. I can go do this thing. It changes so consistently that it makes it better. I do this with reading. I do this with studying. I do like I rotate everything to curb kind of the boredom or the anxiety of like, I'm doing something, but I'm not actually doing it because I'm tired of what I'm doing. I'm just like sitting there staring at a book or a screen. And so by rotating it out, I'm always doing something new. And so it keeps me engaged. It keeps my attention. And that that was a huge thing for me because it kind of placates this like negative thought process of like, I'm bored. I'm not doing enough, like all of that, because I am doing plenty. It's just a matter of sometimes I'm doing too much of one thing and I just need to change it out and find something new. That's so funny to me because that just is like almost like an artificial version of uh, ADHD hyperfixations. Because <laughs> I have nine million hobbies because I will hyperfixate on one of them for uh, could be anywhere from like a week to a month, depending. And then my hyperfixation switches. There's actually I will plug this. I feel like I've plugged this before. It's called Renaissance Souls. It's an amazing book. It's not like really for mental health but it, it does talk about people who like don't feel that they can focus on like one thing and it, it, it basically is like a guide to feeling like you're you're committing to a certain amount of hobbies so like you might have like four hobbies that you focus on in a month or for a year some people never change so it could be like 10 years and just like how to do actionable things in those hobbies so instead of just being like I want to learn French like learning how to how to do things that are actionable. It's not really like a self-help book, even though it's usually sold in the self-help section. It's really just for those of us who uh, can't commit, quote unquote, <laughs> to a couple of hobbies and just like to do lots of different things. It's so funny growing up and even now people are like, but I thought you were really into this thing. And I'm like, no, you got to keep up. I'm a whirlwind. I've already forgotten what, whatever that hobby was. This is extremely funny because Ruby wrote this, this outline, as you mentioned, and um, it's kind of in the section of like going outside and it's just finding a new thing. And I've written definitely resonate with this one. And I thought that it literally meant like finding objects in the woods, which, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and I feel like it is, I feel like something that really, that really makes me feel like very connected and uh, very kind of connected to my my, um, my locale, I guess. But that appears to not be what you meant at all. Thank you. But no, let's be real. We all love it when you post pictures that you with things you found on your walks in the Discord. Like, best part of my Saturdays is when I get those pictures. Crow brain. Literally, it's such a crow brain. Like, it appears that every, like, shiny part of, like, finding a new species or something. Okay, so oh. let's move on to some possible barriers and then maybe even some solutions or tips. We already kind of discussed a couple of these, but, like, we can go through it kind of more in depth. Phil, you already, you've kind of gone into ADHD, but do you have any more kind of barriers that you've encountered <laughs> or tips that you have? <laughs> um, ADHD, boy, howdy. I will say this. This is another thing that I kind of was thinking a lot about this weekend. It's not that ADHD is the barrier. 
is that it's ADHD plus capitalism. That's the barrier. A lot of people who are neurodivergent, the, the system is not meant for us to function in. Just like in times when I have operated outside of the system, either because I've taken a long time camping or whatever, like I feel very at home. But since we all live in a society, TM, it can function as a barrier because you just don't have the executive function to maintain a consistent quote unquote spirituality. And that's been very difficult for me in a lot of ways because there's often this pressure of like, especially when people are doing the whole daily practice discourse, there's this pressure to do things a certain way to feel like you're not good enough, but it's just really that you're trying to work hard in a system that's not built for you and and working in a spirituality that doesn't really coexist with the system either. Nice. Thanks for sharing. The next one is burnout, which is my enemy. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have had so many burnouts in my life, despite my age. Um, and they come from everything. It's happened in career a couple of times. It's happened in spirituality. It's happened in my personal life. It happens all the time. And it's annoying. But I think the thing with burnout, the biggest tip, I guess you could say, is to pace yourself and be gentle with yourself. I think that's one of the worst things that leads to burnout is trying to meet all of these standards or these expectations. Whether For me, it's usually ones that I set for myself. I set really high expectations that are not always attainable. And I'm really bad at like looking at them and being like, that's not attainable. Why are you setting that expectation? And so I attempt to meet it only to then fail and burn myself on the process. And so for me, it's a matter of recognizing when my goals are not attainable or breaking it down a little bit more and then also being gentle with myself if I don't meet that goal because it's okay typically these things are not like if you don't do it now everything's gonna fall apart like it's just a goal that's being set and I can be a little bit flexible with with what I'm doing and when it needs to be done burnout requires you to take care of yourself and to be gentle with yourself and not to be too judgmental that's really hard to do given the society that we live in and how capitalism drives kind of the daily grind, even, even though that's not healthy and it's been shown not to be healthy. So just be gentle with yourself and identify maybe the signs before they like start to go really downhill and work to just give yourself the time you need to heal. It was funny, actually, when I decided to leave gradu like graduate school. It was because of significant burnout. That was one particular reason. But I remembered the semester after, before I actually got a job, I took that time just to, like, recover. I had, you know, funds saved away, and, like, I was, it was in a fine financial position. I cannot tell you how amazing it was to intentionally make time, like, for myself as a human to exist doing the things that I loved. And when I encounter or I, like, notice myself slipping back into kind of the habits that I have as someone who is burnt out, I'm re often reminded of that experience. And it brings me back to this, like, need to just live my life authentically in the way that I would want to and to really just take care of myself as a human being. And it's really, it's really important. What about both of you? How have you either encountered burnout or handled it in your own life slash practice? I encounter burnout too much. Honestly, 2022 has made me realize how how much I burn out. My, my 2022 has been just a series of burnouts after burnouts. A lot of that, I think, has to do with things, quote unquote, returning to normal and me just not being ready to handle that. I don't know what my advice is. My advice is a bit complicated. <laughs> a lot of it is just we need a we need a cultural shift. There's only so much we can do as individuals. So like, don't feel 
like don't feel that it's your fault it's not your fault burnouts you know we live in a society too you just need to think of of things that regenerate you and it shouldn't just be work 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 vacation because then your vacation is never a vacation it is just recovery trying to find things that regenerate you throughout the day and like you know that's why i'm always advocate for naps or reading a book or doing something that's just for you i i hate the word self-care self-care i think oftentimes feeds into capitalistic notions and it's not actually that helpful because sometimes it's self-care is about you know it should be about getting out of bed and making your bed you know that's just that's not glamorous yeah you know you do what you can and, and community is important finding community could be religious community but community is important and phys- like real physical community i wish self-care could be relabeled to something like making strides or doing something that makes you proud right because it's not always glamorous and i think self-care is like by calling it that there's almost at least in my mind like a level of shame is it's like things have gotten so bad that I need to like take care of myself and it's like well I mean no shit but Mm -hmm. at the same time like I mean simple things making your bed cleaning your house I mean cooking cooking for me is a big thing like I love to cook and bake and I don't get through as much as I want to and so being able to spend two hours in the kitchen is like the best thing ever I couldn't enjoy anything more so I think like just achievements like personal achievements or moments of of pride is like better than than self-care I've actually heard it called self-parenting before because I think that's kind of what it is. Interesting. Like, yeah, so it's like being a parent to yourself and sometimes like setting those boundaries for yourself when you need them to be set. Um, yeah. yeah, with regards to burnout, I think like I, something that's helped with me is is realizing that I have my entire life to explore spirituality. Like I have, I don't know how old I'm going to get, but I have my entire life to explore things. So there's no rush. There's no need for me to really push really hard. And if I need to take a break, I can take a break. Um, there's no, the, the goal thing, like the daily practice thing is a bit artificial for me. And so I just need to take things at my own pace, explore things, give myself the time to kind of decompress if I need it. And, you know, it's going to be there for me when I come back. Yeah. Uh, and, and I feel like with uh, a lot of the things that we've uh, discussed, uh, some of their barriers are kind of apparent, being demo- demotivated with depression, getting caught up in your head. And this leads me to our, our next thing and our final thing discussion that can often happen in this community religion spirituality is not a cure for mental illness and it should not be used to spiritually bypass and what spiritual bypassing is this kind of idea of oh well like if you you're depressed because you're not like praying enough or something or over glamorizing burnout for example you're like oh i push myself so hard so it's this idea of kind of like passing over issues by using spirituality am i explaining that you think good yeah good so the definition well. if you look this up is a tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues psychological wounds or unfinished developmental tasks basically it's attempting to use spirituality as an avoidance mechanism yeah so sometimes people if they're feeling mentally unwell they might like avoid spirituality they might kind of uh disconnect from their practice like we talked about just now with burnout whereas it can go the other way like you can kind of really overcompensate and neither of these these things are healthy so I guess it's really important to think about like what does a healthy practice look like for you? Like what does healthy engagement look like? What do you think would be a kind of a reasonable level of engagement and um, you know that's, that's going to live sit in with your lifestyle and um, not interrupt things too much? I think it's important to recognize that spiritual bypassing does as much harm to you as it does to others because it perpetuates 
this harmful ideology in within the community, which in and of itself is, is a bad thing to be to be doing. It's just not worth it. You're a human. We are like we're not perfect. I mean, what what even is perfect? Let's like not even. There's no quantifiable method or scale of perfection. You're just a human and you're doing your best and that is more than enough. So give yourself some grace. Don't there's no need to blame it on spirituality. There's no need to say, oh well I am experiencing all these things because I'm not doing a good enough job. Just give yourself some grace. It's not it has nothing to do with that. You're a person and you deserve to take care of yourself. So with that we are at time. So do you want to do some final thoughts? My final thoughts, fight the power, engage in your tiny rebellions, take a nap, read a book. Remember, we're all existing in this system and not one person is to blame for the way that it harms us. So yeah, be patient with yourself and be patient with others. My thoughts are that mental health and mental illness is not just one thing. Like you can't pin it down just to like meditation or medication or you know this spiritual practice or that spiritual practice you have to find balance of what works for you and that might take some trial and error it might take taking breaks but don't be afraid to kind of push outside those boundaries sometimes and you know just give yourself the space that you need yeah my final thought is just a reminder that mental health is not entirely psychological it's it's a combination of physical and mental so you like there might not be a good reason why you're experiencing something it could just be a collection of a lot of things bringing everything to fruition so give yourself some grace you're there's not always going to be like a reason why you're experiencing anxiety experiencing depression feeling unmotivated life ebbs and flows your physical body has needs and if it's not being met sometimes mental health is like a way that it compensates it copes so just be be kind with yourself be gentle recognize that this is something that is sometimes out of your control and that's okay but finding healthy coping mechanisms can be really really helpful we'll include some links below with some papers that we've read that might offer some assistance i think what we might also do is include some mental health resources lines for like the us and the uk that you can go to if you need help but yeah big thing is just take care of yourself listen to yourself and what you need okay it feels a little silly to do all of our like classic ending stuff so i'm not gonna do it this episode but we'll see you in two weeks and hope you join us again if you want to talk about this more join the discord that's the only thing i'll say because ruby is there and she's amazing and we're also all there and happy to have these conversations so with that we'll see you next time bye everybody Bye.